Over the last five years that we've been doing Historians of the Movies on Sunday nights, I've kept a list internally in my head about what film I'm dying to show most, to share with the audience, to talk about. And for the longest time, one film has reigned supreme, and that's 1987's Dirty Dancing with Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. God, I love this movie. I've seen this movie so many times. You know, it comes out for revival every few years. Like every five years, they'll do another run in the theater. And I've seen it for like the last 15 years. I've seen this movie so many times. I just love everything about this movie. I watched it a little bit earlier today, right before we recorded this pod. I am so excited to talk to you about this because I just had the absolute best conversation with three amazing powerhouse historians, Leah Legrone, Lauren McIvor Thompson, and Lauren Lasab Shepard. We had the best talk today about Dirty Dancing. It's maybe one of the great hidden history films we've ever seen. It has so much to talk about labor and sexuality and gender and class and the 60s and the 80s. And God, it's an awesome movie. I think a lot of us love this film. And I am so excited for you guys to listen to this podcast. We had an absolute blast. Can't wait to share it with you here today. So without further ado, sit back and relax. Nobody's putting baby in a corner this time either. Dirty Dancing is next in Historic Movies Podcast. Okay, well... Um, hi everybody. How are you? Hey. Hey. Hi. <laughs> hi. <laughs> oh, that was musical, except for L Tom or L Mac went like two with, with with two highs. So all right, so for people joining in today, we have three returning historians at the movies podcast champions, Leah Legrone, Lauren McIver Thompson, and Lauren Lasab Shepherd, all of three of whom have decided on new nicknames for the duration of this podcast. Uh, Lauren Lasab Shepard is going to go by L Shep. Uh, we also have L Mac over here, and then also Leah. Guys, I am so excited. This is the number one film. Like, I have a list of like the movies to do on Sunday nights, and this is like the number one movie we've never done. Yeah, I've been waiting for this movie my entire okay for at least five years. <laughs> I'm surprised that it hasn't been done yet. I'm surprised it hasn't been available. How does how does Dirty Dancing in all of its glory? not be available on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Disney Plus. Can you imagine that? Abortion movies brought to you by Disney Plus. <laughs> Take that, Ron DeSantis. <laughs> they never say the word. I mean, if you were a kid, you wouldn't know what was happening. Oh my gosh, we have to talk about that because when I was a kid, I did not know what was happening. I didn't either. Do we just jump in? Okay, so we're doing Dirty Dancing. You guys have been on the pod before. I just want to, okay, introduce yourselves real, real quick. Who you are, what you do, and then let's jump jump in. Let's start. I'm going to go with reverse order here. Let's go L Shep. Oh, hi. I'm Lauren Lasab Shepard. I um, am an instructor at the University of New Orleans um, and first time Dirty Dancer watching now film critic. Uh, I literally <laughs> just finished watching this like 15 minutes before we started. It just ended uh, first viewing and it was fantastic. I loved it. Oh, first viewing. That's awesome. That's why, see, Lauren had told me she had never seen it. So I thought it would be awesome to have someone who hadn't seen the film. In addition to people who were like, I've seen this movie at the theater like five times. All right. All right. Elmac, who are you and what are you doing here? What What are your dirty dancing credentials? 
Uh, my Dirty Dancing credentials date back to 1987 when I won at my school fair the actual vinyl record of the soundtrack. Um, so that was super awesome. Stop. And I'm an, I'm an assistant <laughs> professor of, of history and gender and women's studies at Kennesaw State University in Atlanta. That's tough to beat. Um, <laughs> good luck, Leah. <laughs> Um, I'm Leah Legrone. I'm assistant professor of history and um, public history director at Weber State. And I am benevolent dictator and host uh, Jason Herbert, who is not. I've taken dance lessons before, but we'll get into that in a bit. All right, let's just jump into this movie. Like typically, this this podcast, as you guys know, have like Lauren Shepard and I did a podcast where we didn't even talk about the movie for like two hours <laughs> and then buried the podcast entirely. Uh, when we did, you're not going to air did. that one, right? No, uh, Animal House. No, that like literally, Lauren and I sat here going <laughs> we're gonna like an it. hour and a half. in. Lauren was super tired, and I was like delusional. We we're like, this is awful, right? So <laughs> delete, 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 that's going to be like delete. the great making of pod. Like we'll harvest like three sentences of that for like a commercial one day. Um, <laughs> but we're going to jump into Dirty Dancing because we've all. We've all seen this movie now. And I want to talk about this movie comes out in 1987. When's the first, <laughs> Lauren Shepard's already written this. What is your first time you ever saw this movie? Do you recall when you, when you saw this movie? I think I went to the theater, but I'm not 100% for certain. I remember getting the VHS, like don't laugh, uh, VHS cassette um, of Dirty Dancing uh, for Christmas. Uh, with the the soundtrack tapes because it it was it was just my favorite so I'm assuming you know my memory fails but I'm assuming that I had gone to the theater to see it and then I got your parents let you see Dirty Dancing in the theaters and you were ten years old my parents did not it was 1987 you didn't check up I mean they dropped us off at the skating rink they dropped Lauren you were from Texas you're gonna go to hell for that or your parents are at the very least yeah okay that's what they did I mean we we got it you know we always got a group I watched Pretty Woman at um, our last podcast I watched that in the theater where my mom dropped a whole bunch of us girls off at the theater and we just we just went in together. I was like 10 years old and we had, we watched it, watch pretty woman at a sleepover. And then like the mom came in and just fast forwarded like the. <laughs> the parts about capitalism. I get right. it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think I probably had a similar experience with dirty dancing. I, I, it must've been probably like 19, probably like 1989, 1990 after it had like come out on VHS. And I, I am almost positive. We watched it at a sleepover and probably you know, a lot of the really kind of politically serious scenes, like just like flute right over my head. Cause you're just, wa- you're just watching these two pretty people fall in love and do beautiful dancing. So. And Lauren Shepard, how about you? When was the first time you saw this film? Oh, I mean, I guess I started it two hours ago <laughs> <laughs> in 2023. Uh, but I mean, as a kid, like I, I remember I had a Greece themed birthday party when I was like eight or nine because I was obsessed with the movie Grease and my mom mm-hmm. actually did my very Catholic, very strict mom actually did let me watch Grease. But like, you know, all those references, like we were just talking about abortion, that that goes straight over your head. I mean, you don't have any way of understanding that. And so I guess that's why she let me watch it. That's must have been why parents in the eighties were like, Yeah, kids, have fun. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy dirty dancing. 
No, no, definitely. Right. And I, the abortion thing is such an important thing to talk about. Uh, and I, I want to get to it here in a minute because you're absolutely right. It completely flew over my head back in the I was reading today. This was the number one selling VHS in 1988. And because of the soundtrack, which we're definitely going to talk about later on. And I mean, this movie was just like, it just, it did well at the theater and then just crushed at home. It just was a map. Everybody was watching this movie. Do you remember your first reactions? Now we're going to go historians at the sleepover. So, uh, <laughs> Leah, do you, do you, did you like this movie as a, as a, as a, as a child? Oh my gosh. I loved it. I, I loved every part of it. I, I mean, I was fully immersed in dance. I, I took dance since I was like two years old, three years old, all of them tap, jazz, ballet, all through college. Um, I took dance classes. And so, you know, that was the, the big thing for me is like, this was the best dancing movie, like summer camp type dancing movie. At the same time, I was in YMCA summer camp, right? Because uh, both of my parents had to work during the summer. And so my brother and I had to go to YMCA summer camp, which was out in the woods with very similar cabins that they had in the movie. And so I just thought like it was speaking to me, dance and cabins <laughs> and and camp and summer camp. And so it was, you know, whether why it wasn't my life, it just, um, it did speak to me as part of my life. Lauren Thompson, what do you think? Do you remember how you came to this? Like what your first thought Yeah. So in addition to like winning the vinyl <laughs> LP soundtrack, like right, I guess like right when it first came out, it, 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 like I said, it was probably 1987, 88. Um, I, it was probably a few years later that I first saw it like at a, at a sleepover as a 10, 11 year old. But I also remember taking a trip with my family um, to the uh, resort that it's in Virginia. I think they filmed a bunch of the, like, you know, all the, all the resort scenes at this. Oh my God. I would place. go for that. And I think we were there, I think like right after they had wrapped the filming and it, like, it was like already like a talk of, yeah. Like, and I don't, my parents were not like tuned into pop culture type stuff. They didn't pick, you know, I think we just like went for the weekend or whatever. And it just so happened that they had just finished filming the movie a few months before. And so all the staff was still talking about it. And so of course they had met Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Gray and um, they had gotten to have, you know, parts in the movie, like as staff. Um, so uh, that was like, I, I didn't really realize until later, like that was pretty cool. Like, you know, but as like a seven year old, I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but no, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been thinking about where we're going to do the very first historians at the movies like convention. Yeah. And I was like, either that place, that place or the river, either that place or the river they did deliverance on. I haven't quite yeah. figured out which one of the two that we'll, yeah. we'll do. I'm thinking probably Virginia. Yeah. Mountain Lake. I think that's the resort name, Mountain Lake. I don't know if it still exists, but I was there. <laughs> Lord, you you got to see this movie as a grown as a grown up. You were the only one of us who like got to see come to this movie as an adult. What what were your th immediate thoughts ten minutes ago? I like as notes. you're coming in, oh, did I got you notes really? too? Yeah. What? Oh, so the I love first, all, three, all four of us have notes. Right. So. <laughs> the, I mean, look, we can start wherever you want. I want to talk about 
Jewish summer camps, like post war oh, Jewish right? summer camps. Oh my gosh, yes. the Catskills. Yeah, like as yeah. a that was a big part of um, historical phenomenon. Um, uh, marvelous Miss Maisel too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, for yeah. real. Yeah. So Miss Maisel was my introduction to that as a thing. Um, and then th- this past summer, right there was a a book about Jewish summer camps. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? I I uh, I think I remember Sandra Fox. Yeah. Yeah, is the author, The Jews of Summer. Um, oh. Yeah. Just just came out recently. Maybe it came out last year. Um, but I remember seeing it advertised everywhere. Okay. Came out February, 2023. So yeah. Um, about like post-war American Jewish summer camps. Yeah. So, I mean, we can talk about summer camps. We can talk about Girl Scout camps. That was my involvement in that. Um, dance movies as a genre, like we could go back to Greece if y'all want to, or talk about Save the Last Dance. Uh, the rich girl, poor guy, also a genre. Titanic comes to mind. The thrashing and thrushing, thrusting, that was like, so I don't know. This, so watching it as an adult, what caught my attention is just like the aesthetics of the movie because this, the scenes go, there's so much whiplash between like, okay, we're in a group scene and everybody's talking. And then um, baby kind of sneaks off to like the staff quarters and, you know, she's walking down like at, at night and then she like sneaks into people's rooms um, or <laughs> when she's not sneaking into people's rooms and she's in like the big open area, everyone's just like thrashing like the dancing is i know it's supposed to be sensual but like there's a lot of like i i don't know i thrusting maybe is a better word than thrashing but i mean it's like <laughs> lots of lots of contractions happening and it doesn't lots of head pops um spinal extensions like there's just a lot going on uh and then also nobody puts baby in the corner. Like, is that where this expression came from? Yeah. <laughs> because in my life, it's a fallout voice. <laughs> like that's the reference. <laughs> uh, what else? So Teenage old. dancing is resistance or rebellion. Also the fact that this is set in the sixties and filmed in the eighties. Do y'all, does that trip y'all up when, when you're watching a movie that's like more than 10 years old, but it's set further back in time and it, and you're having to like, toggle back and forth between like wait what wait, like, is this the jean they... shorts are so 80s like yeah <laughs> and i'm like nobody wore those in the 60s <laughs> the kids they did and kids kids they were yeah, the kids yeah this movie comes out in 87 it's set in i think 63 it's 24 years early this movie is in our time set in 1999 you know, it doesn't like if we think about it in that terms, it's not that long ago. But as a 10 year old in 1987, this was like the Jurassic era for me. Yeah. Like the like your 50s parents and age. 60s were like this time period. And here's the thing if Baby is what, 16 in this film, she's 40 when she's doing the voiceover narration or something like that. It's not, you know, she's, she's still a young woman. Is she 16 in the film? Oh, yeah. It opens up some complications. Because oh, Johnny's 25 and ick. she's 16. Is yeah. she? See, I thought they said she was she like... Was, she was going there's to... There's like Mount a Mount Holyoke. Holyoke. Yeah. Oh, was she, okay. 18. So maybe she's 18? Yeah. Or was oh. that her older sister? No, I think she's going to Mount Holyoke. Yeah, I think it's... Okay. She, she's she's okay. in the fall. That was one of my favorite lines. Yeah. She's still a teenager. Like... Yes. <laughs> she's, she's 16, 17, 18. She's Dane Cook to, to Mary, essentially. So... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from a strictly, like... Narrative standpoint, we open up with this. One of the things I actually love is this voiceover to introduce us to. It was the summer of 1963, back when everyone still called me. Do you like this 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 use of because she we 
we start with this and then it just disappears. Yeah, it doesn't wrap back around. It, it it's only in the very entrance and then we never see it. Does that work for you? Is it did you find that helpful? Do you like this as a narrative device to, to start introducing us to the film? If it were carried out all the way, I think it maybe would have been more helpful. It's just it's I guess it's stage setting, but there's a million different ways that you could do that. I do remember very clearly she says something about uh the JFK assassination hadn't happened yet. And she was about to join the Peace Corps. And that's when she was uncritically letting people call her baby. I don't know. What else do y'all remember about that first scene? I mean, that was about it. Just We just yeah. get that in the car, right? And then and then we're off to the races. So, you know, you typically expect like she'll interject throughout the rest of the film. But it's the only time we ever, I, I guess it just kind of sets the stage. And looking back on this, I keep wondering, okay, who is baby Houseman in 1987. Who's the 40 year old version of her looking back? Cause obviously we're going to come back and ask if she and Johnny are still together, but don't answer that just yet. Um, Cause I'm kind of wondering how she's thinking back on her. She's clearly thinking about her life and reflecting and we get the story through her eyes. So, you know, all right, let's start with that. Lauren, you brought this up earlier. This is really an explicitly Jewish film. Wouldn't you say? I mean, and I didn't get that growing up in Western Kentucky. I'd never met anyone that was Jewish until I went to college. So thoughts on like introducing to maybe the, uh, the Jewish summer camp. I mean, is it, is it something that you picked up on when you were watching it first? Or is this a thing that you kind of learned later on? I mean, I, I picked it up pretty quickly just by who the actors were um, and the screen credits and the director's name. And I can't remember what they were anymore, but it seemed clear. But I mean, for a movie that came out in 87, I'm sure there was a lot of whitewashing anyway, and they didn't want to sell it as a Jewish you know, film, even though it, it really seems it's like pretty it obviously Jewish, but not like saying it out loud. I looked up who wrote Dirty Dancing. It was Eleanor Bergstein, who was born in the uh, late 1930s, uh, I believe in, in Brooklyn. Um, and so just if you look at her biography, her like family dynamics kind of mirror baby. She's got had an older sister, um, that sort of thing. And so you just wonder how much of herself she put into the film, you know, what it was like to be a teen girl, teen Jewish girl in the early sixties, you know, you're 15 years or so past world war two. People know about the Holocaust by now, but American and, and Amer- certainly the, the, the civil rights movement is, is at the forefront of the newspapers and, I, 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 it's just interesting to think about how a young Jewish teen would have been like navigating that exact moment. So she, clearly she's the, the writer was remembering what it was like. Well, I remember that Eleanor Bernstein and I watched a, um, I mean, even when I was young, I watched a uh, interview with her um, about this film because it was so wildly popular um, and she she said that her nickname, you know, when she was young was Baby. She did the dirty dancing at the camp, you know, in the Catskills. And then, you know, she she went back and interviewed for the movie um, some dance instructors from from there. And so I just I found it fascinating that she's putting so much of herself in it. I also had to Google whether she put Frances Perkins, whether she based a lot of, of the, you know, cause it says, you know, my name is Frances, the first lady of the cabinet. And 
I didn't, I haven't, I had never watched it critically as a scholar before. Francis Perkins is a big um, player in my own uh, research. And so I, I found the parallels between um, Baby and Francis Perkins just like unbelievable. So I, I had, I had, I didn't look it up, but I, I have to think that um, Eleanor Bernstein used a lot of pr- Francis Perkins as well, because Francis Perkins went to Mount Holyoke. Francis Perkins ended up um, majoring um, at Wharton School um, in sociology and economics, whereas Baby is, you know, studying economics of of third world countries and just kind of the same progressive era type utopianism, you know, the rich people have a duty to help uh, the working class. And so which which is kind of mirrored in baby's own thought process as she's moving through the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a film that that is looking at that post war exuberance and the deeply embedded family life that crossed race and class in in the 50s and 60s. And I mean, I think that the resort, you know, it can, on one hand, it was a place where Jewish families could go and be with each other. But also, I think it also speaks to like, the the anti-Semitism and racism that probably drove them to do that in the first place, because Jewish people are still excluded from public life in many ways. And again, the, you know, the civil rights movement is, is happening all around. It, it, it's a subtext here. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's really interesting to think about like the fact that the, the writer and, and her life and how it got put into the film and what she's trying to say about post-war America. So I thought about that too, Lauren, I, while I was watching it again, <laughs> Uh, the other day and today again. <laughs> um, <laughs> we should have uh, a big watch party today. Three thousandth time, but I I did think about that. I even wrote that down in my notes that I, the kind of the post war activism part mm-hmm. of it um, that I was trying to unpack with because you you know what baby wants to do, but then you have. Um, what was his name? Neil or something? Uh, how he was going to do freedom rides, right? So I had written, I I marked down in my notes that this kind of East Coast, and I may be like generalizing, but East Coast saviorism um, from from Ivy League schools, you know, this kind of East Coast, we've got to do our part, saviorism. And it, it just, it struck me you know, I hadn't done the research on it or, or moved through, but, but, you know, you see these, these kinds of patterns in upper class, upper middle class, um, especially, you know, educated upper middle class people like jumping, I don't want to say white saviorism at, you know, out loud, but um, necessarily, because I don't know if that's what it was, but it, it just, it struck me and you saying it again, like, um, that that part of it struck me. 
so I'm glad that you brought that up, Leah, because I almost feel like the the writer put a lot of that in there, like really poured it on to be a little tongue in cheek. Yeah. Like I, I mean, think yeah. it was almost meant to be like a, a humor thing. Like we're look, we're so we're such do-gooders. We're good. Like I'm going to third world countries. I'm going to Mississippi. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> right. that sort of thing. And it's mm-hmm. it's I think she was trying to be funny with that only because um it was it was sprinkled throughout, but when it came on, it was like she really laid it on thick. Well, and maybe just making fun of herself and making fun of her class and education, you know, that kind of thing is, um, oh, look at us. Here we go again, you know. Yeah, I wonder too, uh, Lauren, I would be really interested in your take on uh, the mother's character because she doesn't speak. She is kept from all knowledge, right? The the dad, like the patriarch is the sort of, obviously he's the decision maker in the family, but he's also like all all information runs through him. Um, and so he doesn't want to tell his wife anything, but then in the very last scene, you know, she jumps in and she's like, Oh, I think she got those dance moves from me. And it's like, she, (laughs) she, she pops in with a little bit of humor and that's all we ever get from her. But I, Mm -hmm. yeah, I really want to know what you think about that. Um, about that character. Yeah. The mother's kind of like, she's kind of like a static character, kind of a tropey Jewish mother character Mm -hmm. where she's like, Oh, you girls, you know, need to be looking for husbands and like, why do you want to stand up straight? Yeah. Like, you know, it's very, I mean, I think maybe she's in there to kind of provide that um, messaging to the viewer. Like this was what it, I mean, baby, the, the film is, is very feminist. I think it's feminist from the perspective of the sixties. And I think it's also feminist from the perspective of the eighties in terms of who is making it, what, what choices they made I I was on the other podcast um, uh, uh, at t- where Jackie Antonovich and I talked about Thelma and Louise with you, Jason. And I, this movie is made right around the same time. And it's really interesting to think about, you know, 80s feminism is producing this kind of cultural messaging where we're, we're they're producing Thelma and Louise. They're producing Dirty Dancing. They're producing Working also girl. things like yeah yeah and then kind of in the early 90s shifting to things like pretty woman and um but yeah like it's it, it the the film definitely is trying to it's trying to do a lot and i think it succeeds in doing a lot um but i, th- I think it's very it's what really well done because there's a lot of threads that get pulled through and especially as historians when you when you watch this like you're thinking about 80s history you're thinking about 60s history you're thinking about like how those two things like reflect now in 2023. Um, it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. This movie does so much. And, you know, Leah, I know you really wanted to pull these threads out talking about class, which are just right there. You know, when you're a 10 year old, you're like, Oh, bad guy, good guy, or that guy's a jerk or whatever. And, you know, but there's, so, I mean, it's just right there. And there's so much to pull out of it. Leah, did you, did you have thoughts on, on the way it's represented here? I do. I think that what stood out to me, partly because I study uh, prostitution and morality and, you know, early 20th century, what stood out to me is this idea that, you know, working class women are somehow immoral and working class men are somehow immoral. And so it follows these tropes, but but not in a tropey sense. It, it really tries to... Um, 
to look at this this class understanding of of the world even even when you know Johnny and baby are talking to each other on the trail that you know after that one time where she tries to hide him from her father after her father puts his his arm around Robbie and and we know that Robbie is working class there, but we don't know his situation. He's, his um, class is kind of ambiguous as far as, you know, he's working, he's working there, but he's going to medical school. And so that's more ambiguous. But he's the one that knocks up Penny, you know, and Penny is the one that's getting an abortion. And so there's, there's this, this underlying current of, addressing um, morality, addressing working class morality. Robbie acute, you know, to put off what he did, you know, he says, you know, she could have been with anybody. Whereas baby, of course, is, you know, from upper class. And so so that it it follows that that narrative of upper class girl falls with, you know, falls in love with, you know, the working class guy. I noticed another part of of class that really struck me is when Baby is telling them that Johnny's not guilty of stealing. That it was it was the sh- um, it was, was Shulamans is that Shul- Shulman shoemakers yeah she, shoemakers um, and that she saw them at and at the other hotel and her dad comes in and says, "Baby, you can't just go around accusing innocent people." Whereas Johnny wasn't provided that same innocence. And so I, I think there's a dynamic there that that's a thread throughout the movie that a certain class of people are considered innocent, whereas the working class is considered immoral and um, automatically suspect. And which that part of it, of course, just fascinated me also. And and then I'll say this part and, and leave it there. But part of my own research is the idea of slumming. And so I think Robbie says, that's okay, baby. I went slumming too once. I'm talking about Penny, of course. And um, slumming was a huge phenomenon in the early 1900s where wealthy people, middle and upper class people would go into red light districts for their entertainment. And it was, it was very voyeuristic, but it was to say, you know, oh, I went slumming. I went and hung, hung around those, those poor people, those working class people. And so that use of terminology in that same thread of um, those class divisions it just fascinated me and how that kind of transfers. I mean, looking at the history as a historian, you know, I'm looking at it through the 1980 writing of it about the 1960s, but then there's a, that longer thread of, of the idea of slumming, the idea of immorality, especially with women, the idea of, you know, um, working class women being sexually promiscuous and, and so that's what really stood out to me. I love that the shoemakers were these. Like, I know. <laughs> that was incredible. They're going around America, like <laughs> knocking places over yeah. and she can barely stand. <laughs> 
And she and they have her typecast as this chatty little old lady mm-hmm. who's like probably out to lunch, doesn't know what she's doing. And meanwhile, or she, she's she took dance lessons from George Burns. <laughs> and I mean, George Burns was ancient when I was little, but I remember him being on TV, right? And so that that was hilarious to me. Was it any surprise that Robbie's giving away copies of the Fountainhead? Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> no, no. Some people matter, no, some people don't. He was a he was an grandstand for sure. <laughs> but see, it's little it's little slips like that in in the narrative that I think are supposed to be humorous, right? That somebody in you know, or not children, but adults in the eighties would look like it would look at and and understand that she's being a little tongue in cheek and she's she's setting up a character for you in advance. So I know this isn't my podcast, but I am gonna ask you a question. What do y'all think about the co- commentary on Reaganomics, like this movie as commentary of, you know, the Reagan era. Well, I mean, Robbie says it, right? He says some people matter and some, some people, people don't. don't. Yeah. I mean, that feels very, I mean, just, this is a very pointed filmmaking. A lot of, it's wrapped up in a, in a romantic, sexy film about dancing and young love and it is hammering away at some real social issues. You know, watching this movie again today, I'm like, holy shit, this this film's got some real teeth to it. And I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's hammering away at Reagan, the conservatism, everything. Everything. So I mean, Elmac can probably speak more to this too, is you know, the the abortion discussions in the nineteen eighties, right? With Reagan. Do we jump into the abortion stuff? Is that is because that's I kind of felt like that was really the pin, like where this whole thing is going to. It's the premise of the movie. Yeah, it's the it's the reason that she's dancing. I can tell you, I I I wanted to say this because I remember when I was ten, and and I'm I'm turning this over to you guys. I remember as a ten year old boy watching this film, ten, eleven, twelve year old boy. I remember quite literally, and I remember quite quite clearly being bewildered when he said, "She's knocked up, baby." I had no idea what that meant as a kid, and probably good um, for you know for a child. I would you know. Uh, to understand what these th- this movie, I was not the target audience in 1987, but this abortion, the the whole film turns on this sequence here. So, Elmac, if you do, you want to jump in and talk about like, uh, abortion? Go and and I want um, Leah and Lauren to jump to jump in and interrupt me too. But I I I, I, have, I have a ton of thoughts about this. So, like in the sixth in 1963, when this film is set, um, this is the period you know, just before birth control is legalized, uh, birth control has essentially been legal since the the 1930s, you know, through your physician. So somebody like baby's father is able to um, distribute birth control to his patients. Um, And also, this is the period where there's this very interesting dichotomy going on where there is an increasing crackdown on uh, on illegal abortion, but there are also physicians who risk their careers to perform them. And we are zooming toward 1973. American opinion in the 60s on abortion is there's consensus that abortion is is a, a necessary uh, part of reproductive life. And that's borne out in this in the early 70s when you look at the Gallup polls that get taken around Roe v. Wade. And so 
I think actually it's quite an accurate portrayal. I mean, they're very scared that, I mean, she's dying in the bed of sepsis because they know that the cops, that they will crack down. They will arrest the person who, you know, try, or she tried to, she tried to do it herself. Is that, am I remembering? No, that? there's like yeah. a fly by night doctor. Yeah, it was a fly by night doctor. Yeah. He's That's right. Be so it's Thursday. Dirty knife and a folding table. It's the back alley trope. Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember if it was self-induced or not, but yeah, that makes that makes total sense because there was this huge crackdown across the nation on those kinds of people who perform that ki- those kinds of abortions, and in response, you get groups like Jane in Chicago and that sort of thing. Um, you have abortion wards that are filled with women who are septic from either self-induced or botched abortions um, in this period, um, and so you're really at this like complete turning point in um, how Americans thought about reproductive rights in that period. And so I think the film does a really good job kind of like picking up on all of those different threads. Um, The doctor, you know, baby's dad just comes in and like, he does what has, he does what he needs to do to save the patient. Right. Um, And so I think that's a, it's a commentary on the doctors that did risk their career to um, perform abortions. Um, I also, uh, Leah, you, you pointed this out, and this is such a good point. Like in the 80s, we're getting that ramping up of anti-abortion activism. By that point, we've really cemented like the linkage between the, you know, the Catholic and evangelical uh, wings who are coming together to start really like hammering away at Roe. And so I think that the filmmakers are thinking about those things and they're watching what's happening in real time in in the Reagan era. And they're thinking back to like, wow, what's, what's different now than what was different in the, you know, than the sixties, what are the continuities, but what's also very different. Well, and what stood out to me, especially about that and why I brought up the question was when baby and Penny are getting ready um, and putting um, baby's dress on and Penny starts crying and, you know, and, tells baby, I don't know what they told you, but I don't sleep around. And so there's a underlying message too that working class women, even though in the film, the working class woman is the one that gets pregnant and has the abortion, that it's trying to kind of reverse that that idea, that thought that working class women are inherently promiscuous are inherently immoral. And so, and then of course that has the, the longer thread that, that goes back to the Frances Perkins days um, of, of women like Frances Perkins who are trying to get the minimum wage for women to keep them out of prostitution. Frances Perkins, even um, like many women of Frances Perkins time, they work at YMCA's or other organizations to escort working class women from like the trains to boarding houses or the trains to YMCAs so that they don't get snatched up by, you know, white slavers. And so that good girls, good working class girls turn into bad girls or or fallen women. And so I think that, but there's that narrative of seduction that comes out of the early 20th century too, that, you know, girls, if girls can't fall, you know, fall for guys, um, seduction methods, because if you do, then like Robbie, you know, you can leave, you can walk away, you can still go to medical school, 
but the woman will um, will forever be fallen. And so I think that the that part of it does a really good job of of trying to address both class and morality with that. Yeah. And as an adult rewatching the film, I was really struck by the fact that um, baby's dad does not, he doesn't go in there and moralize. He, I mean, that's what make, I think that's what makes the film in that moment feminist because they're just portraying, look, these uh, institutionalized social circumstances have, have brought us to this point, but then he, you're not going to hear a sermon from the doctor. You're not, you're not hearing like, a, and, and that was not obviously necessarily the case. I mean, there were plenty of moralizing doctors who, you know, made their patients feel terrible <laughs> as they're prescribing birth control or, you know, helping them get an abortion. And so, but I, so I, I think it was a very deliberate choice to have the dad, not uh, as a physician, not say anything mean to Penny. And it's in the script that he goes back and checks on her yeah. too. Right. Like there's another scene where baby, I guess, comes to talk to Penny and she's like, Oh, you just missed your dad. Like <laughs> he did a follow-up appointment with me. But um, Leah, that scene that you were talking about where um, Penny is helping baby get dressed. I wish that, I, and this is just me, my brain is having to fill in these gaps because it wasn't written in. Um, but I wish that the writers would have included um, baby's thoughts on that because she doesn't react at all. She's just silent and she doesn't interject and say, no, I'd ever thought that about you or, Oh, okay. Like there's, you just get nothing from her. Um, and I would have liked to see that, but that's okay. Maybe we can, <laughs> maybe, maybe that silence is so that the viewer can, like I did fill in their own thoughts. Can I ask then about how, uh, how baby's dad we're talking about him not judging Penny, but his reactions and relationship to Johnny as he comes out of the building. Johnny goes to thank him, but Penny's dad obviously thinking that Johnny is responsible for putting her for both impregnating her, but also setting her up with a hack doctor. Can, can we speak to that as far as like maybe his different because he has different relationship to Penny versus Johnny, right? Well, I think he has a different relationship to Penny versus um, working class people in general. Because if you remember when he was leaving, you know, he didn't shake Johnny's hand. When he was leaving, he turns to baby and says, you'll have nothing to do with these people or those people. And so I think, I think it's more about, you know, taking his, work as a doctor seriously, but then there's that narrative or that trope of the father is supposed to be the protector of his family, especially his girls. And girls are supposed to leave the protection of their father for the protection of a husband. And if they go out into the world, not living with their father or not having a husband, then they're women adrift. Um, so I think we see, or there's parts of it, you know, at the end it comes about where he apologizes to Johnny. But I think we're, what I think what we're seeing is kind of this internal struggle of, of being a doctor, being this progressive, because, you know, even baby says, you lied to me too, or you let me down too, because she believed, you know, all of this progressive talk from her father, that everybody was equal, that everybody deserved a chance. 
And when they're leaving, he turns to her and says, don't have anything to do with those people. And so um, I think we're seeing his internal struggle of his politics and his words uh, versus or his politics and and his practice versus um, his words. One thing I thought of, too, about the the abortion scene, you know, this as a whole, the film is is a coming of age film and it's a film about emergent sexuality. It's about baby finding as a young woman her sexuality and I think it's a commentary, though, on in the in this period, and I would argue in the 80s when the film was made, that there's always it's like that phrase in feminism, pleasure and danger, like your women who embrace their sexuality, who are sexual, are always walking that line where it can ruin it can ruin your life, ruin your life or it can literally kill you. Um, to be sexual. So I'm going to just jump in and piggyback on that. So I, I, I found it fascinating that Jason, I mean, I, I know you're coming from a, a male point of view, a male, a 10 year old at the time, but I always remember. How dare you use my point of view and thoughts? Yeah, ten-year-old male point. But of view. I always remember as a. Girl, are you talking about then or now? Because those no, points then. of view are actually quite similar, <laughs> as I've been told. <laughs> but then, because I was the same age. I mean, you and I are the same age. No, you're so older. I was the same. Oh, shut up! I'm going to you off on your own podcast. But I, I remember understanding what Penny was, what what was happening. I don't know that I had the word. Abortion, I, I I think I did because it was such a huge topic of conversation in church, in school, you know, in the fifth grade, we had to sit through that period movie, you know, where they tell all the fifth grade girls, this is what's happening to your body. And, you know, and if you don't practice abstinence, you could die. But even in church and school, in in homes, if you know, if our parents who listen to Reagan talk about you know welfare queens and abortion and and shake hands with Jerry Falwell, abortion and and pregnancy outside of marriage and promiscuous behavior and moral girls and you know here's your uterus and this is what happens and we'll know you're pregnant if you don't have your period. And I mean, the period movie when we were in the eighth grade was a scary thing and, and they used it to promote abstinence in the eighties. And so, you know, I, I just, I don't ever have a memory of not knowing what happened to Penny and not knowing why she got knocked up. That scene, too, is not really clear. So when she's going to the refrigerator with, what is the kid's name? Is she with Neil in that scene? Mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. She's there sneaking around trying to find a snack in the refrigerator. And then she hears Penny crying. And she's immediately like, okay, cover, cover, cover. Let's get out of here. And then she goes and gets, what is the friend's name? Uh, the cousin. I don't remember. Johnny's cousin. Johnny's cousin. Anyways, Johnny's she gets Johnny's cousin. cousin. He doesn't get a girlfriend, so he doesn't get a name. <laughs> Not a main character. Uh, she, Yeah, she gets Johnny's cousin. Johnny's cousin gets Johnny. And then they all run back. But on the way back, he's like, 
she he he knows based off of the limited evidence that baby would have had to give him that <laughs> all he knows is like she's sitting and shaking and crying on the kitchen floor but somehow he knows she's pregnant and so that's just not clear like i guess they just take a lot of liberties to to throw that out there for me billy yeah billy, billy. for me the scene was always Sorry, they knew that she was pregnant and so okay. the the scare under the the scare under the table or wherever she was or not the scare but the the crying I thought that was always because she had witnessed Robbie and baby's sister out on the golf course. Oh, okay. And um and you know that's where she witnessed um or she or she tried to ask Robbie for the money. And he left with um, baby sister or some kind of interaction that we don't know that happened off camera, but that it was implied when they went back and she was crying that she had asked him for the money. And he said, no, that's what that stood out to me too, just because of the, the power that men have to walk away and not no, no responsibility for, for pregnancy. I, I like that it's the one shot that she has to get an abortion. She can't get it because she's working. Yeah. Like yeah. it's that off limits to her. Elmac was just hinting at this. And I want to ask you this. This film comes out in 87, Reagan administration. Where does AIDS play into this film? Like, because I feel the shadow of AIDS. Thinking back on this, we're talking about the se- the danger of sexuality. It's obviously never spoken of in the film because it's set in 63. But, you know, the director, Emil Ardolino, did he actually die six years later of AIDS uh, in 1993? Um, a lot of people, you know, I know that uh, it, hit certain, it hit dance communities hard. Uh, it was really difficult. And the Reagan administration, Reagan administration famously didn't jack squat about it. Do, do you see AIDS at all or am I projecting here? I think, no, I, I agree. I think... I think it's because it's a nostalgic look back at 60s life from the vantage point of 19, the mid mid 80s, the height of the Reagan era. I I think that there is a nostalgia there for, you know, it's kind of like in Forrest Gump where (laughs) you follow along with the story of um, Jenny and she's like wild and crazy in the sixties and seventies and on Coke and doing all this, <laughs> having all this sex. And then like, then that, that promiscuity comes back to bite her because she gets AIDS and dies, you know? And like, so I do think that it's a, it's a, there is that shadow. Absolute. I mean, they couldn't have not been thinking about that when they're making a movie about, uh, I mean, not, not, and not necessarily even about baby and Johnny. It's about like, the rampant hookups that took place at these kinds of resorts or with, you know, over the summer with stuff. Summer loving happened so fast. (laughs) (laughs) And in, in like nightclub communities too, Jason, like you said, I don't know. I, I wonder if that is consciously not there. Cause it sounds like we've all four decided that this is um, a political film for sure. But I wonder if that might've been part of the like, whitewashing for mass audiences. Like we're not going to talk about AIDS Um, in the same way. We're not going to say these Jewish people are Jewish, right? There's no reference to that at all. I think that that's, I think that's spot on because I mean, if you look at all the dance scenes, it's all heterosexual couples. 
There is no interracial um, dancing. The black men are with black women. Um, You know, uh, Cuban men are with Cuban women. Uh, Other Latinos are with Latinas. Um, And white people are with white people. And so there is no kind of interracial mixing there. There's just the the larger class discussion. But I think that's, yeah, spot on. I want to move on from the heavy talk for a second and ask you guys about the soundtrack. (sighs) Why aren't we listening to it right now? Why is it not playing in the background? So we were all talking before. I think every one of us listened to the soundtrack separately of watching the film. And... I was listening to it today going, God, why don't, why don't I listen to the soundtrack more? I remember listening to it. Leah, you said you had, you had it on tape. Lauren danced her way to a copy of it. <laughs> we all had this. I know. Oh my gosh. Right. Well, Lauren's cooler than the rest of us. I know. Although I, I don't do, know what like, happened to it. I think my mom threw it away. What? <laughs> it's what? really sad. <laughs> I don't know where it went. Yeah. Oh I, I, I haven't seen it in years. So she probably, you know what? I, this is the first time I've got beef with someone's mom. So I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's on. How dare she? <sighs> All right. Hit me with your favorite song from the song. You get one song on this soundtrack. You've got to hit me. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm making you choose one favorite song and we're going to exclude time over life. Cause that that's different. No, because <laughs> no, you can't. We all vote for that. It's too synonymous with the film. It's it's too perfect. And of course, the big thing I remember back in the day is like, this song was written for the movie, which is set 24 years ago. And you this song was out so often you could set your clock by it. I mean, it was like every five minutes. And I swear to God, I was making chili today and I was like doing the the, the dance, the Johnny <laughs> Castle dance. And like the dog was like, Are we going outside? Do you have to pee? I was like, maybe. What's the song that they're dancing to when they're practicing? Is it Be My oh. Baby? Be My Baby, yeah. Be My Baby yeah. by the Ronettes. Yeah, and he when he sings it to her, I like that. Um, what about <laughs> Hungry Eyes? Hungry Eyes is Eric Carmen. Yeah. Oh God, that's that's one where the the montage. You get this great dancing montage, and it's got like him and it's got Penny uh-huh. like d- dancing and like the scene where like I was like where the montage where the two were like. Baby and Penny are dancing, and Johnny's sitting in the floor with this like hand, like kind of sitting crisscross, and he's kind of kind of drumming on the floor and so forth while they're doing that. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, this it's, this movie's got good montage work. Like yeah, real. This oh, is God, like rocky can, level montage. I can totally picture Patrick Swayze doing that like right now in my head. Uh, right. Yeah. That isolated image, though, you could so easily like transfer that to like Patrick Swayze ghost. Like it's that he's doing the same thing. We have to hold off on Patrick Swayze. God rest his soul. Oh, we got to. So. I don't even know how much I love Patrick Swayze. I have a thing called Patrick Swayze-thon every year. Go on. We all know that there's a Dirty Dancing soundtrack too. Did you have yes? Because I had yes of them. And in fact, these arms of mine, which are not, which is the scene when they do the, the adult thing, is actually the same song. That Patrick Swayze gets with in Roadhouse, another classic romance film. <laughs> Maybe even more political, because how dare you kill Sam Elliott? Yeah, how's these? How does these arms of mine not make it into the original soundtrack? The the one because that is a that's a song. Can I can I interject here real quick, not to get us off the song thing because we'll come right back to that. But I'm reading the Wikipedia for. Um, for Jennifer Grey, and she and Patrick Swayze are in Red Dawn. Yeah, three years earlier. That's where they first acted together. Coming to a live pod near you. <laughs> and yeah. they hated each other. I'll be there. 
hate. Yeah, that's right. Lawrence could be there. All they this lore. Why? I don't know any of this. I don't know any of this. Okay. Wow. I, I did not know disqualified that. to be here. Today. Oh. So they, like the actors did not like each other? Okay. Oh, let me give the, so people who are listening, let me give the, the quick backstory. Yeah. So Red Dawn comes out in 84. And I know this because I've seen this movie a hundred million times. Um, Gray and Swayze famously did not like each other during the film. But sometimes when you don't like each other, you get awesome chemistry. So, so and Artelini was very, he'd actually, the director had actually worked on Flashdance and was very adamant about having actors who could actually dance because the problem with Flashdance is they used people at times who, they interjected dancers in for the people and you could tell. So we needed people who could tell. And Swayze is actually one of the great dancers in film history. He's a classically trained dancer and he actually had to kind of dumb down his dancing in this film. I told you guys I love this movie. Yeah, he turned it into convulsing rather than dancing. <laughs> okay, first of all, how dare you? That man is a legend. We saw the same movie, man. He's that's what he's doing. <laughs> you don't see dirty dancing; you feel dirty dancing. Secondly, um, but anyway, yeah. So he had to talk Jennifer Grace. And said, okay, I know we didn't get along, but we can work this out. And at first, it was good. And then they went back to hating each other. And the the filmmakers actually had to pull out test footage from the from the casting auditions to like, look, you guys are great together. Stop your beef. Mm. And eventually what was it over? Wow. They did. But in Patrick Swayze's memoir that he publishes afterwards, he talks about how he made fun of her, that she was a crybaby, that um, they had to do all these takes. And he got so frustrated with her that she would be, you know, she would either cry if you criticized her or, she was um, silly and they had to, you know, redo these takes. So you could tell that there was still this, you know, frustration there. Well, you know, one of those scenes is actually in the film. Yeah. She's laughing and he's like being real yeah. sensual. That's an action outtake that they put into the movie. But their chemistry is phenomenal. So good. I mean, name another Patrick Swayze coupling aside from Sam Elliott that is better than with Jim Jennifer Grey. I mean, we talked. We said ghost a second ago. Oh, I don't. I don't want to talk about ghosts. It makes me cry. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, he does have good chemistry with Demi Moore. Like that's you know, you ask for a, a comparison. But I, I think there. I think having seen both, like I do think there's something more there with with Jennifer Grey. Like I mean, not that. I mean, I think that Demi Moore is was. I think she was great in that film. That's that is a sad film, but. Oh yeah, I don't God, Lee, like it's like that enemies to lovers thing. Like you just wonder maybe what was going on behind the scenes. All right, back to the soundtrack. I got a couple more questions here. All right. Overload? When he I like love that song. If, I love that song so good. Yeah, that's a good song. Right. And then here you go. Here's 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 my Loki favorite. And I can't listen to it all the time. In the still of the night. Five satins. Oh, I love that. I love my that. My friends. Song. I fucking love doo mm. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember when I, remember in the 80s, you would get cassettes. Yes. And like 50s and stuff like that. And my stepdad, God bless him, would have all these cassettes of like doo hits. And I grew up listening to like the Five Satins and all these dudes. And that was like, I mean, a classic. I remember growing up in Louisiana, listening to that. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, man. My dad had the same. There's a there's another song from the movie, uh, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? I used to sing that song at the top of my lungs. I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, every that's... song in the soundtrack is a, as you can say, banger. <laughs> everything is so good. All right, now let's talk about Time of Our Life. Is, 
is I've Had the Time of My Life, the greatest song ever made. That's a stretch, but it, it's the greatest one, I think, on the soundtrack. It's it's unquestionably right. I mean, if it comes on on the radio, I don't change the channel. Like, let's put no. it that way. <laughs> well, somebody yeah. who's seen um, Dirty Dancing a million times, when I hear it, I can, you know, that that one part of the scene where he just does this to her face <laughs> yeah. after they dance, <laughs> and to sing to her, um, uh, yeah, what, what is, what's the part that he says, um, and I owe it all to I owe it, owe, all, to owe it all to you. I think I like do that. that every single time the song comes on. I scrunch up my nose and, and do the scene. You're doing it now! You're I doing know. this nose crunchy thing. Everyone nose crunch. <laughs> Now we now we look like feral rabbits. I just see I just see the 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 lift like that's oh, all I absolutely. Can <laughs> all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a threat. I'm gonna put a whole th- thing out there. Next conference, anybody who wants to do the lift, just let me know. I'll do the lift. Just run up to me. <laughs> just say, Jay, lift time. Put baby in a corner with like, no notice. Just no yeah. no. Just, just start randomly running at me. Right. I guess they both come crashing to the ground. Like they just go, I, would, I would literally just fall over. Like right. well, we got a conference next month. We got yeah. we got the like we got yeah. The, you can do it. The, you you're, you took dance like for a long time. You can do the you can do the lift. We didn't talk about that. I I also took dance. So oh. like in West Palm Beach, I'm 22 years old. Oh my goodness! I'm incredibly bad with women. Um, some things don't change. <laughs> And I'm like, you know what I need to do? Salsa Dancing. Lessons. Yeah. I take salsa Become lessons. Patrick Swayze. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And I'm like, so I start showing up at like all the Latin clubs. I'm like the white dude, like the gringo down there. And I swear to God, it was the, one of the best decisions I've ever made because I can't dance at all. And I'm incredibly goofy. But people were like, can I just. All I want to do is dance. I'm like, I know the moves. I can do the thing. <laughs> so I can still, I can still do the salsa. Uh, to the, and also we did the thing. Do, were you guys around for like the nineteen, like 1998, the swing dance revival? Yes, you guys remember that? I totally participated. Yeah, as did I. <laughs> it was yeah. You could take like classes at college. Uh-huh. I went to the club, so you take classes like for a couple of hours. And then they shut the the classes down and they they start the the club music. Yeah, those bands are still going. Like Cherry Pop and Daddies is still, and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, they are still on tour uh, to this day. All right, I got a couple other, a couple other things. My elementary school did square dancing in 1998. That's that's what I was doing. <laughs> I don't know about swing dancing. That devilish stuff wouldn't have been allowed in South Mississippi. You and I grew up in similar places. Did you learn to do two step? When you were a kid? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did. So, yeah, it's right. Leah, yeah, you did too, right? Yeah. Because C- Cajuns do two-step. Mm-hmm. So I grew up doing Cajun two-step. Zydeco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what's the lyric? Grab a two, two-step partner in a Cajun beat when it lifts yeah. you up. Oh, oh my God. My Mary Chapin Carmen. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Be still my beating heart. Oh my god! I still, <laughs> I still have the biggest crush on her. I follow her on Instagram with her with her golden retrievers. She's on Instagram. Oh yes, she is, and she's lovely. Right now. I mean, her "Come On, Come On" album. I like put that. My kids think I'm nuts. I, I feel put like it on. we all became best friends right now <laughs> because that "Come On." Okay, um, the song uh, "Quitting Time" is oh. the saddest song, oh, and it's so, so good. So sad. Do you know the song? Okay, yeah. three, two, three of us know. Lauren Shepard, do you know the song "Quitting Time"? Um, sing it for me. 
Okay. I'm deep into Mary Chapin Carpenter's you really? Instagram. You <laughs> pretend and I pretend oh. everything is fine. Yeah. And Keep though going. we should be at an end, it's so hard admitting when it's a quitting time. <laughs> okay. Is, that, is that okay? Yeah. Like, I'm hoping that's enough. Okay. I hope that was enough deep. That was a really uh, good cultural. One. <laughs> I, I'm such a bad singer, Lauren. I'm so sorry. But what I'm hoping for it, like our producer Fletcher Powell says, we can only bring a song in on the sound on the podcast if we critically interrogate the song. So as scholars, we have all critically interrogated "Quitting Quitting Time" by Mary Chapin Carpenter on the great album. Come on, come on. Correct. I was trying to find a picture of me and my tutu, and it, I couldn't find one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I cannot believe I just sang on this podcast for the first time. Um, I, I, I think am you opened so it up. I sang earlier. <laughs> like, okay. Like, yeah, but I don't, do you guys have what we refer to as talent? I'm like, uh, <laughs> um, we'll all, all right. be singing by the end, of the, <laughs> the end of the night. Just, just keep drinking girls. Um, what about, <laughs> that'll be the new podcast. Just keep drinking. Um, <laughs> do you, I'll throw the girls in. Next time I have, like, you know, you guys, did you, when I had the four dudes on that did, did Kingdom of Heaven, I'll call them the girls from here on out, and that'll be fun. <laughs> I love that. Well, we ha- you gave us nicknames when we started. I did. Everyone's going to get a nickname, and I'm going to need a flowchart at the, at the end of all of this. So, all right. Favorite scene from uh, Dirty Dancing. What do you got? Can I go back to that scene from a second, go- second ago um, where they're just – dancing together and the song's playing and i guess neil walks in again and he's like make sure you get your money's worth out of this right. oh my god neil's such a tool yeah that guy's a I like tool, that tool, scene, tool 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 yeah el mac what you got you got a favorite scene actually one of the i think one of the cutest funniest scenes is like when they're first they do that first performance and she kind of like forgets what she's supposed to be doing and she does the yeah, that, and I like I always laugh so hard at that, that scene. Amazing. Yeah, um, that is followed closely by when they're in the, I guess it's like after they've done the adult activities and they're in the dance studio together and they're like you know <laughs> crawling across the floor. Um, and I remember watching that as probably like you know age eleven, like I said. The and baby. I, baby. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. Whoa, yeah, yeah, and Swayze's like. Bew, bew. I gotta stop seeking. I I can't help it now. I guess the answer is two Angry Orchard crisp apples. That's all it takes. (laughs) She turns his instructions around on it too. Dude, it's like drinking Kool-Aid and then you're drunk. Then you're deciding I'm gonna write a substack tonight. No. No. (laughs) Then you're singing on a podcast. My apologies to Mary Chapin Carpenter. Leah, what you got? Not that I am not completely smitten with the relationship of uh, Baby and Johnny, but I think one of my favorite scenes is still just the bonding between Penny and and Baby uh, when she's getting ready because Baby's just helping out or what doing what she thinks is right, and and Penny um, Penny finally has kind of a a different scene a different moment um where she's not trying to be you know all hard and um and then she's kind of vulnerable in that moment and so there's this 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 bonding you know between the two of them i think that's she's kind of like the older sister i think Mm -hmm. that baby needed and didn't have Have. yeah yeah 
it's an amazing thing, you know, you, you talk about that because so much of our conversation tonight is actually re- has revolved around Penny. I mean, obviously, it's been a lot about Baby and Johnny, but Penny is really, really the catalyst that makes a lot of this film go. You see a lot of this film, you see her her character arc change as she kind of softens or o- allows herself to open up. She's also the voice of reason where she's like, you know, when Baby leaves the room and she, lo- and she looks at Johnny, she's like, she just knows immediately. She's like, you got to stop. you know and she's right Mm -hmm. she's an endearing character even from the beginning when she's trying to be cold Mm -hmm. because so like think about when you when you first see penny it's Mm -hmm. her dancing with johnny and she's just phenomenal and Um, that really thick accent that she's okay you know (laughs) kind of new york accent it's she's from nashville originally oh she's so good oh my gosh she was married to richard marks no, what? I didn't know that. Yes. They got married in 89. She would have towered over him. I mean, she was like so tall and statuesque. Those legs. There will be no Richard, Richard Marks slander on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I love Richard Marks. I, w- I will I will see. You were right there waiting for him. Oh, my gosh. Lauren Shepard, do you not know Richard Marks? Uh-uh. No, but it sounds oh like my. Richard Marks knew what he had. Oh, my God. Well, I think. All of his stuff was like before he met her because like he's got one of the great an actor? breakup songs. He's a singer from the yeah. 80s. Mm-hmm. And one of the great breakup songs ever is Should Have Known Better. Do you guys know this song? Sing oh it. Oh, my God. Let's hear it. Do you want me to sing another song? <laughs> Lauren, you don't want that to happen. <laughs> Should have known better than to fall in love with you. Now love is just a pain. What is it? Shady memory? Uh-huh. Something like that. It's so good. It's such an angry song. It's on every playlist I have, especially at the gym. I'm just okay. I'm gonna leave this tab open so I can listen to yeah. it later. You, we're making we're making a Lauren Shepard, Pat, uh, <laughs> Mary Chapin Carpenter, Richard Marks soundtrack. But no, 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 no. Hold on. Before we move on from this, I want to say Baby is a, a super endearing character. Like when you she first is. see her dance for the first time, you're just blown away by her incredible talent. Um, but then. Even the next the next scene where she's just she's like packing up her bag and all of the women are wearing wigs for some reason that's never explained, um, but but baby comes up to her and and says she's like I just admire you and so like that transfers like all of your attention onto her as like something to be admired and you know of course she's being cold and distant and like protecting herself like you little rich girl you don't know about my life but I don't, there's there's a lot to love about. Penny's character. Yeah, I love Penny's character. And that's another one of my favorite scenes where, you know, um, when Baby was like, you know, you used to be a rockette and I envy you. And she was like, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's like this kind of, just like you said, you don't know anything about my life and you're so naive. You're a child. You know, you have no idea. I had to leave home at 16 because my parents. Being a rockette was work. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, it, uh, yeah, Penny was my, Penny's hands down my favorite character of the movie. Can I tell you guys my favorite bit of acting in the entire film is actually when Baby, when Johnny looks at Baby, they're trying to talk, say that Baby can step in for Penny. And there's this very subtle thing that, that Jennifer Grey does with her face. When Johnny says, see, she can't do it. She just said she can't do it. And if you go back and watch, Jennifer Grey does the slightest little thing with her face. It's ever so subtle. Like It's an F you. Yeah. Oh, it's such an F you. I can too. I will show you if it kills me. It is 
fucking brilliant. I thought, oh, it's so good. If you watch it, it is just the slightest little twist. Or and Man, I gotta watch out for this now because I don't think. I mean, I, I, I'm sure I can't remember this. It's her so eyes subtle. Narrow, way. yeah. Her eyes narrow. The camera holds on her face for a couple of seconds. Yeah, and and you can just tell she's like, okay. Motherfucker, I got this. <laughs> Maybe that was a scene of like her talking to Swayze that was an outtake. And yeah. Jim, like, oh we right. got to put this I mean, here. Definitely <laughs> something yeah. Okay. Here's our big question tonight. Are Baby and Johnny still together? Wait, I'm sorry. Can we, can we get some clarification on this question? Like, are the characters still together in like a sequel or like. No, no, no. Are they. No, this is obviously what happened in real life. And are they still together right now, today? They got together Patrick Swayze in is not dead. The character never dies. Let's assume that Johnny Castle and Penny and, and Baby Houseman are still alive in 2023. This would have been many years later. Um, let's Okay, let's say in, in 1987, are they still together? This, this would, they'd be 40 and, say, 46, respectively. Are they still together as of, as of Baby Dirty Dancing? They would have been to they no. I'm gonna say they like it would have been written as like, you know, Starcross lovers should have been together, but fate intervened and like he was killed in a car accident or something. Like I feel like that's, the, that's, that's what would have happened. Than Leah is say, and she I, never remarries because she's like faithful to him. <laughs> that's, <Okay>. that's a story. <laughs> All right, Leah. So I thought about this uh, before we got on this podcast because I know I, I, really, ask. I really disappointed you with saying that um, Edward and uh, Vivian, Vivian are, were no longer together. But I, I kind of think that Baby, I, I would like to think that Baby and Johnny are still together, you know, Baby being the naive, you know, a utopian uh, young woman she was. And now I don't think that her dad would have liked that uh, he was in the house painters union. <laughs> so I think maybe he helped set him up with something else that could sustain them um, a little bit more, but I would, I would like to think that they were still together. Lauren. I think, I don't know. I feel like their class differences in 1963 were too much to overcome. And maybe even the Jewish. Uh, yeah, the Jewish, non-Jewish. I didn't, I didn't consider that. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. And I, I think that that voiceover that never kind of comes back, maybe that's like the, the clue that like, Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just this fleeting moment where my life shifted and then I went off to Mount Holyoke and like did my like upper class Jewish girl thing, you know. Because yeah, it was I mean, summer loving, unlike yeah, in movies. Yeah, it's like each other again in high school. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like a, they're happy for now at the end of the movie, but then not necessary. I don't. I don't. I think. I think in, in if that was real life, I think it would be a very difficult yeah thing to overcome. All three of you disappoint me. <laughs> Love is love. They last Cause forever. Because we, we kill Johnny. They die under another's arms. I kill Johnny. Yes. In 2022. It's the notebook. 
they not, not even notebook because they break up for a while. And she's like with some other person. He writes her every day for a year. I'm trying to think of other films that have this same like rich girl, poor guy plot line and they fall in love over some, you know, concentrated amount of time. Um, oh, and how do they question. end? And the Titanic is the same thing. Jack dies. Rose lets him die. <laughs> Did you guys see me? I posted on Instagram on that. Uh, she's like, I slept with a homeless man and watched him drown. <laughs> I sent that to my mother-in-law. She was hilarious. <laughs> All right. Here's your big question. Is Dirty Dancing a history movie? I think so, yes. It's political history. Class history. Gender history. Religious history. With the fact that it's a, it's a labor history. Who gets taught? And this is the thing <laughs> I've been asking you earlier. Like this whole thing, this idea that in the summers you could go and take off for like weeks at a time. And go oh to you can if you're wealthy. Right? Yeah. Well, no, Jewish summer camps are still big now. I mean, I don't know if they're whole family, but um, like kids for sure still go to Jewish summer camps. It's second wave feminism movie for sure. This is like one of the low key, like it, this is one of the, the sneaky historical films I can think of. It is a sneaky good historical film. All right. That's it. It's been the time of my life. I've been waiting for that to say that all day long. All I ask is that we start to think about what we're doing next because this was too much fun. Leah, Lauren, Lauren, associated puppies in the background and so forth. Thank you. He finally, he finally came. He's, he went in the, my 80-pound lab is <laughs> right next to him. He was the one that was op- like kept opening, the you know pushing open the door, and then he was like walking around. <laughs> Sorry. I am so ha- guys, I'm so happy we could do this. I wanted to do this movie uh, with you guys for the longest time and we had to push it back a couple times. Um so thank you for making the time to uh, to Thank do you this for inviting us to do it cuz this was like- You guys are the coolest. I swear I'm I'm not making it up when I said I wanted I picked I wanted three people to talk to you on this and I literally got my my top three pe- I'm not kidding. I went oh. Leah, Lauren and Lauren. I am not kidding. So thank you, you all. We can go on tour. We're we're else. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Actually, hold on just a second. I'm taking I'm taking a picture of, of the screen here. Hold on. We should there, do a live there. action. Oh yeah. We should oh, do live action and you that. should actually catch us all in the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Drive and you can pick us up. Start start you know lifting. The, we, we actually have a thing. Uh, okay. We'll do this. Oh Denver. Denver, Denver. it is. All right. So Are you gonna lift Kathleen right. Ballou in the air? Is she aware of this? <laughs> To have not discussed this with Kathleen. <laughs> Kathleen was kind enough to agree to be on the thing. And, <laughs> this is an Easter uh, egg for anyone who listened 90 minutes through to this. Right. <laughs> I will tell you a story about this off air in just a moment. So, all right, I'm going to hit pause. Everybody say good night, and then I'll hit, I'm hitting pause. Good night, night. <laughs> And that's a wrap here at the Historians of the Movies podcast. Thank you so much to our holy trinity of guests today, Leah Legrone, Lauren McIvor-Thompson, and Lauren Lasab shepherd Thank you so much for being here. This God, it is so awesome to hang out with you guys. Uh, this was just an absolute blast. Thank you so much to our intrepid producer, Fletcher Powell, for being here. You can find him on Twitter and elsewhere at Fletcher underscore Powell on X, Twitter. I don't know what the hell it is. Blue Sky, more importantly. And thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you're listening to the soundtrack right now or next as you're driving wherever it is you are. 
Uh, if you like the pod, please continue to listen. Please continue to share. Please, if you will, leave comments, good ones, on Apple iTunes and Spotify. That helps to get us some more notice. Tell your friends about us and uh, keep listening in. Keep uh, sharing this. And thank you so much for being part of this Historians of Movies community. It's been an absolute blast. If you are going to be in Denver, please show up to Wincoop Brewery, November 11th at 6 p.m. Kathleen Ballou and I are going to be doing a live version of the podcast. We're talking about Red Dawn in Denver, live from an audience. It's going to be absolutely amazing. So hopefully we can see you guys there. In the meantime, ciao for now. Bye.